Well, we're on page 11 of your booklets there, so if you want to keep a finger in Genesis 3 and uh, balance your booklet on your other leg, uh, that would be a useful thing to do. On the 24th of October 1997, Anu Singh and her boyfriend Joe Sinkwe, both university students at the Australian National University, held a dinner party for their friends. To the people, they looked like a, a normal couple happily in love with each other. But unknown to most of the people at the dinner party, Singh had laced her boyfriend's meal with rehypnol. And later that night, she tried to kill him with an overdose of heroin. Joe Sinquay survived and astonishingly had no idea that anything bad had happened. And so Singh organised another dinner party for the next night and did exactly the same thing. Laced his meal with rehypnol and gave him an overdose of heroin. Sometime the next morning, Singh called an ambulance, but she gave the wrong address. And anyway, by the time that she'd called, Joe Sinquay was already dead. The great Australian author Helen Garner wrote a book about the trial. It's called Joe Sinquay's Consolation. And she records a moment when she was standing outside the courtroom just chatting to a man uh, who was outside as well. Eventually she realised that he was actually a police officer involved with the case who was there to testify. And he commented to her, there's definitely something wrong with the girl. But then, there's something wrong with all of us. I think even those of us who have been brought up on a diet of self-esteem with parents and teachers and Pixar and Disney all telling us uh, what wonderful people we are, we still have the nagging feeling that there's something to that. There's... Something wrong with all of us. We've searched for the hero inside ourselves, but what we found was not a hero, but a villain. We've tried to be true to ourselves, but discovered that we ourselves are crooked. Yes, it's true that some of us are so self-absorbed that we always think the problem is out there, it's other people. But the more reflective among us know that the problem isn't out there, it's actually in here. There's something wrong with all of us. We saw last night that Jesus sees the cross as the centre of his ministry. It's the solution. But if the cross is the solution, what's the problem? Well, it's this, that there's something wrong with all of us. Come with me, Uh, keep a finger in Genesis 3, but come with me to Romans 3, Uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, This is Paul summing up what humans are like. And he does it by quoting the Old Testament. This is God's summary of humanity. Verse 10, as it is written, 
There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's a damning verdict, isn't it? Literally damning. No one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. And when you look around the world, you do see all sorts of evil everywhere you look, don't you? People are evil. From the very public evil of an Adolf Hitler or a Kim Jong-un to the hidden violence, hidden evil of domestic violence. From rape as a weapon of war in Central Africa and Syria to the casual sexual harassment of the average Aussie workplace. From the murder that kills people's bodies to the gossip that assassinates their character. Everywhere you look, you see evil. There's something wrong with all of us. But you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, Ben. Look, I agree that there's plenty of evil throughout the world. And yes, you know, sure, there's something wrong with everyone. Nobody's perfect. But don't you reckon Romans 3 is a bit over the top? Like, no one does good? Not even one? Because I know lots of people who do good. Christian and non-Christian alike. Surely Romans 3 is just a bit of exaggeration. It's God going a bit over the top for the sake of emphasis, for the sake of impact. But is it? Is that what God's doing? Is he exaggerating? Well, come with me back to Genesis chapter 1, to the very start of creation, and let's see how things unfold. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from there, God shapes the world. He fills it. He declares it good. And in verse 26, he creates humans as the pinnacle of creation. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is what God has made us to be, to be in his image, like him, his representatives on earth, to be godlike, the pinnacle of all creation, to be princes and princesses of the world, ruling it well under the king. If you flip to chapter 2, you see a similar thing there from a different angle. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God creates man. He blesses him. He plants a garden for him to live in, fruit trees to eat from. It's an incredible blessing with real privilege and real responsibility. Responsibility for ruling over the garden, caring for it under God. And even better, God creates a woman to help the man rule. And now the man is very pleased. Verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And the author tells us, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. See, if chapter 1 showed us structural beauty, wisdom in the forming and the filling of creation, then chapter 2 shows us relational beauty, people in perfect relationship with God and with each other, totally naked, physically, but also emotionally, psychologically, without any shame. Just one united humanity working together under God to fill the world and subdue it, populating the garden and expanding its borders until the whole world becomes a garden filled with one people under God. Can you imagine what that must have been like to have humans and God just together in perfect harmony? To have humans together in perfect harmony. No friction between us. No friction between us and God. No frustration. Just ever-increasing beauty and goodness. It's an incredible blessing. Incredible privilege. But it's very different from our world now, isn't it? So what happened? Well, come with me to chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, everything was wonderful, but now at the start of chapter 3, a creepy character slides over to the woman. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, You don't need to be a particularly sensitive reader to notice that suddenly we've got a talking snake here. You think, hang on a minute, what's going on with the talking snake? What's he doing here? Where'd he come from? Who is he? Well, he's depicted as a serpent, but he's much more than that. In Revelation chapter 20, John calls him that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. And you think, Satan? What is Satan doing here, the the arch-adversary of God? What's he up to? Oh, nothing really, just asking a few harmless questions, really. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, God didn't say that, did he? He said you're free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. The woman replies, we may eat from the trees in the garden, 
But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. Strange that the woman adds the element of not touching it. That wasn't there in God's original command. Don't know why she says that. Maybe that's what the man had told her. Uh, Don't even touch that thing. But do you notice that the serpent has actually struck already? He's injected an element of doubt. Did God really say? Really? God said that? Gosh, I'm surprised by that. Huh. And now he strikes again, reinforcing the doubt. You'll not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And in verse 6, the poison reaches the heart. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Oh, well now that you mention it, that tree does have really nice looking fruit. And, you know, the random talking serpent guy says that it'll make us wise. Surely God won't mind. They listen to the serpent. They trust themselves instead of trusting God. They want to be like God, knowing good and evil. But what does that mean? What does it mean to know good and evil? Well, it can't mean knowing what's right to do and what's wrong to do. They already know that it's good not to eat from that tree. And they know that it's evil to eat from it. It's not simply knowing good and evil in that sense. And it can't simply mean doing good and evil, like the experiential knowledge of actually doing it. Because in chapter 3, verse 22, God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But God doesn't do evil. So if it's not understanding what's good and evil, and it's not doing good and evil, what is it? I think it must mean deciding what's good and evil. See, God can say, I know what is good and evil because he's the creator. He knows the nature and the purpose of everything, how it's made, what it's made for, and so he knows what is good and evil for his creation. But the man and the woman are saying, no, God, we know what's good and evil. They're rejecting God's authority. They're setting themselves up as independent rulers. They're rebels. They're traitors. They're declaring independence from the king who has given them everything, who has blessed them beyond their wildest dreams. God's given them everything, incredible privilege and power, made in his image, made to rule the world under him. But they say, nah, stuff you, God. We're going to go our own way. Do you get how evil that is? How disgusting? Don't know if you've ever seen kids just being total brats to their parents, treating them with contempt. And it's not funny, is it? 
not pretty. It's not trivial either. That arrogance, that pride, that insistence that they know what is good and evil and that their parents are just fools. No, Mum, no, Dad. I know what's good and evil. Get out of my way. It's awful. It's ugly. It's evil. And you know it's only going to get worse. But it's not just Adam and Eve, is it? It's not just other people. It's actually us too. It's you and me. Without God's work in us, this is where we go too. This is the natural bent of human hearts. We think that the world revolves around us instead of around God. To quote the uh, author David Foster Wallace from a speech he gave at the commencement service of Kenyon College. Here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute centre of the universe, the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you have had that you are not the absolute centre of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you or left or right of you on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings, they have to be communicated to us somehow. But your own is so immediate, so urgent, so real. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the centre of creation. It's all of us. We all want to rule the world our own way. We all think that the world revolves around us. And in verse 7, we see some of the immediate consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All of a sudden, things have changed. At the end of chapter 2, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But now... Shame overwhelms them. The sociologist Brene Brown says, the thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Guilt is a focus on behaviour. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. In deciding that they know what's good and evil, Adam and Eve don't just rebel... They become rebels. 
They don't just do something evil. They become evil. They bring shame on themselves. It's a story that's been repeated ever since, isn't it? Go on. Take it. Enjoy it. You don't know what you're missing out on. Don't worry what God says. Take a walk on the wild side. This is freedom, baby. But it never is, is it? As you listen to the tempter and you start to believe that you know what's good and evil, well, your eyes are opened. You do see a whole new world, but it's not a whole new world of freedom. It's a world of shame where you want to hide what you've done, hide what you've become. Adam and Eve make these pathetic attempts to try and cover up fig leaves for clothes, hiding in the garden, trying to hide their guilt and their shame from the God who sees right through them, the God who sees right through us. Because God knows. He knows what they've done. Our translations of verse 8 say, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day which kind of makes it sound like God is out for this pleasant sort of afternoon stroll. You know, he's just had lunch and feels pretty good, goes for a bit of a stroll in the garden. But the word that's translated here as day, yom, is actually a homonym for another word in Hebrew. I don't know if you know about homonyms. They're words, two different words that sound exactly the same, that are spelled exactly the same, like arms. Arms can mean arms, or they can mean weapons, guns, tanks. It's the same here. That word yom, day, is identical to another word, yom, which means storm. So it might actually mean, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was going back and forth in the garden, in the wind of the storm. I don't think the author is saying God's out for a casual stroll. He's saying he's appeared in the storm to judge. God is angry. Come and have a look with me at Romans chapter 1. Keep your finger in Genesis 3, we'll come back, but go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Or chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Or chapter 2, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You see what the Bible is saying? God is angry. He is personally angry at our sin. The problem is not just on our side, that we've kind of wandered off and God is like, oh, oh no, please come back. 
I don't have any problem with you guys. I've got no problem with what you've done. Just, just come back. No, God is angry at our sin. Now, some people get very uncomfortable with that, and you can understand that, can't you? Because the anger that we're used to is so often profoundly ungodly, so often out of control and evil. God's anger is not like that. And yet he is angry. I mean, how could he not be? Because aren't you angry when people treat you with contempt? Aren't you angry when they treat those that you love as though they're nothing? When you see the evil that people do, the cruelties that they inflict on one another? Aren't you angry? When you see the devastation caused by war from people's greed and selfishness? You see the heartbreak that's caused by unfaithfulness in marriage? Even the the sadness and the pain that's caused by the petty, nasty little things people say to each other on Facebook and Twitter. Aren't you angry? Isn't there something really ugly going on there? Something really evil that should make us angry? It's not a good thing to be okay with evil. It's not a good thing to see the appalling things people do to each other, the appalling nature of their hearts, and to just shrug your shoulders and go, eh, doesn't matter. No, that itself would be evil. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and God is more righteous than you. He is more worthy of honour than you, and he cares far more deeply for those who are hurt by sin than you do. God's not angry because he's unloving. He's angry because he loves so much. And it just sickens him to see how we treat each other, how we treat our fellow humans, and how we treat the other members of the Trinity. The Father hates to see how we treat his Son and his Spirit. And they hate to see how we treat the Father. Not because they're just sort of randomly angry, but because God is love. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they love each other and they love the world that they've made. It was very good. And we, in our arrogance and pride, our insistence that we know what's good and evil, we treat them with contempt. We treat others with contempt. And we've made God's good world very bad. God hates sin, he's angry at it. Not because he doesn't care about us, but because he loves us so deeply. Parents understand this. They know what it is to love a child so much that it hurts. And at the same time to be sickened and disgusted, angry at them for their evil attitude and behaviour. In spite of his anger... The Lord gives the man and the woman every opportunity to take responsibility for what they've done. But they turn it down. They blame everyone except themselves. As the old joke goes, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and the snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? (laughs) So God curses the serpent, verse 14. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But although the serpent is the ultimate source of evil, the man and the woman are responsible too. They could have told Satan to get lost, take a hike, creep, but they didn't. They listened to him, they believed him, they rebelled against God. And so God sentences the man and the woman to hard labour. For the woman made for relationships, her closest relationships are now shot through with pain. Childbirth will now be labour, hard labour. And her relationship with her husband will no longer be straightforward and easy. Instead, as they each try to be the centre of the world, it will become a wrestle for control. The woman desiring to rule over her, uh, her husband, insisting, I know what's good and evil, I'm in charge. And he will wrestle back, no, I know what's good and evil, I'm in charge. And he will rule over you. It's a disaster. It's, it's a tragedy that we've seen play out ever since. For the man made to work the ground, sustaining life will no longer be a simple matter of just plucking fruit from trees that he never planted. Now it's going to involve painful toil, wrestling with the ground for control. And in the, in, and in the end, the ground will rule over him. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And that's a tragedy we've seen play out ever since as well. The man and the woman were supposed to work together in harmony under God to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it for the good of creation, expanding the garden, pushing its borders out so that eventually the garden would incorporate the whole world. But now that possibility is gone. Verse 23, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. God chooses to expel the man and the woman from the garden. And once outside the garden, well, creation is frustrated. The garden can't be expanded. The whole world cannot become what it was intended to be. Our sin has broken us. It's broken our relationships and it's broken our world. And finally, God passes the death sentence. Verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Death has always been the sentence for treason, and there is no greater treason than rebelling against the king of the universe. 
No greater treason than setting yourself up as God in defiance of the true and living God. That's evil. It ruins everything. It deserves death. And that's what they get. See what that tells us about death? We usually think about death as just a natural occurrence. It's just kind of your body winding down and then finally it stops and kind of happens to everything. It's just the way things are. But this is telling us that the death of humans is not natural. It's not just a process that happens. No, death is a judgment. It's God's judgment. Whether we die suddenly and alone or at a ripe old age surrounded by friends and family, death is the judgment of God. It's not natural. It's capital punishment. It's the penalty we deserve for rebelling against the author of life. And as if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. Because it isn't just that you die and that's it, that you cease to exist. No, we continue to exist, the Bible tells us. But we exist in a living death, under the eternal judgment of God. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. You might want to turn to it, actually. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a graphic picture, isn't it? It's like being dumped at the tip to be eternally consumed by that sort of smouldering fire, to have maggots burrowing through you as you writhe in agony. It's an awful picture. It's horrific. But it's not something that I've come up with to creep you out. Not something I dreamed up to ruin your sleep. No, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus says will happen to sinners who refuse to repent. This is what Jesus says we deserve. For rebelling against the author of life, we deserve a living death. Now, I was going to talk here about how Adam and Eve's sin leads to our sin, but this talk was getting too long. I've cut it out, so you can ask me in question time. But instead, I want to ask what Jesus' death shows us about sin, because I think it shows up some things very clearly. Firstly, Jesus' death shows us that we are, by nature, God-haters, I heard a story once about a church in London that was looking for a slogan for their Easter mission. 
uh, something that would get people thinking, that would encourage them to, to come along and come back to church for Easter. So they asked the Anglican minister, Dick Lucas, if he had any ideas. And he came back with the suggestion, humans, given the first opportunity, kill their creator. And the church didn't end up running with it, but I guess it's not upbeat enough or you can't fit it on a postcard or something. But when you stop and think about it, it's right, isn't it? We are God-haters. Certainly Jesus thinks we are and that the cross proves it. And come with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 verse 1. This is the last passage we're going to look at. John chapter 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. His brothers, uh, and then his brothers start mocking him, uh, telling him that if he's such a big shot, he should just uh, stop hiding in Galilee and get on up to Jerusalem, become a public figure. Uh, and in verse 6, Jesus responds, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. In other words, I'm not going up to Jerusalem yet because it's not time for me to die. But that time will come and it'll come because the world hates me. But why does the world hate Jesus? Well, Jesus says it's because he testifies that our works are evil. By his total joyful love for the Father, his scandalous embrace of the unlovely, his refusal to cave into sin. In other words, by his very godness, Jesus made us look bad. Don't you hate it when people make you look bad? Don't you resent them? Don't you wish that they'd just go away? That they'd be wiped out. We hate it when people make us look bad. And Jesus made us look bad. Left to our own devices. Left to your own devices. Are you actually really that different from the people who crucified Jesus? God the Son made us look bad. So we took him and we nailed him to a cross. Humans, given the first opportunity, killed their creator. We're God-haters. Secondly, the cross confirms that we deserve death and judgment. To quote the Apostle Peter, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus suffered in our place. We're so used to that. We say it so glibly. But do you get what it really means? It means that Jesus and us swapped places. He gets what we deserve. So what did Jesus get? Did he get a slap on the wrist? A severe talking to? Or just an indulgent smile and a shrug of the divine shoulders? No, he suffered condemnation as a blasphemer. Stripped of all power, 
exposed for all to see, naked and ashamed, mocked and ridiculed for his divine pretensions. The wrath of God poured out on him. Jesus went through hell. Now, it's true that Jesus did suffer for the sins of the whole world, not just for mine, and the Bible does imply that there are degrees of punishment for sin, just like there are degrees of reward in heaven. It's clear that we're judged by our works and our motives and that not everyone engages in the same degree of evil. But whatever degree of evil we're involved in, it's still true to say that we are all blasphemers. We've all grasped for divine power. We all deserve to be stripped naked and shamed, mocked and ridiculed for our divine pretensions. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve some degree of hell. And Jesus thinks that any degree of hell is something that you would be better off maiming yourself over than ever experiencing. Any degree of hell is something to be avoided at all costs. If you've got any doubts about what you deserve, look at the cross. And finally, the cross shows us how utterly helpless we are. We know that there's something wrong with us. We spend billions of dollars trying to fix ourselves. Better education, better medicine, better psychological therapy, better laws. We urge people to get help, to try harder, to believe in themselves. We try to push back death. We watch our diet. We take our vitamins. We invest billions of dollars in the hope of eking out a few more years of decrepitude and decay. All in the belief that we can do it. We can free ourselves from the effects of sin. We can turn our world back into an earthly paradise. We can take and eat from the tree of life. But Jesus' death tells us otherwise. See, if God could have dealt with our sin like that, then he's stupid, isn't he? God would have to be a fool, a colossal fool, to send his son to die such a horrific death when he could have just given us a rousing pep talk, could have loaned us a few billion bucks, could have told us about a bit more advanced science. No, the cross shows us the real situation we're in, and it's much worse than we like to imagine. The cross tells us that, left to ourselves, we are utterly helpless in the face of sin, powerless to deal with God's anger, incapable of escaping death and judgment. In our society, sin's become a bit of a joke. It's sort of the thing that, you know, oh, it's supposed to be bad, but we all secretly think it's pretty good. Now, it's sneaking the bit of bacon when you're supposed to be a vegetarian. It's eating the ice cream when you're supposed to be on a diet. It's the sort of stuff that you confess at parties and everyone has a bit of a giggle. But the evil that we think and say and do is no joke. The contempt that we show for the one who made us is no joke. Our deep-seated belief that we are at the centre of the universe is not something that makes God chuckle indulgently. God thinks sin is deadly serious, that it's evil, 
He doesn't giggle about it. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, huh, kids these days. No, God finds sin revolting. It disgusts him. It makes him want to vomit. He cannot stand the sight of it and he will not leave it unpunished. So is Romans 3 an exaggeration? Is God being a bit over the top when he says that there's no one righteous, not even one? No, not even close. When he says all have turned away, they've together become worthless, he means it. He's not putting on an act to scare us into trying harder. God is actually angry. And the wrath of God is no joke. Death, judgment, eternity in hell, they're no joke. They're just what we deserve. The whole Bible is very clear, and Jesus' death only makes it clearer. The policeman I mentioned at the start is right, isn't he? There's something wrong with all of us. Something very wrong indeed, and God will not leave it unpunished.